Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our news editor Paul Wallbank. Hello. And our senior media reporter Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And later on, we'll be chatting to the IAB CEO, Gay Leroy, about Mamma Mia's exit from Nielsen's digital content ratings. Look, I'm hoping Mamma Mia will come back in at some point. Why she still believes in panels. Panels are becoming sexy again. They're actually coming back in the vogue. <laughs> and dramas at IAB's town hall. So it wasn't as heated as probably you're hoping, <laughs> but there were definitely some different takes. But first, the week's topics. TV ratings in a post-maths world. WPP's gender parity push. Domain mixes up its marketing leadership. And pedestrians, founders depart. So let's talk telly to start off with, Hannah. Um, Now, before we get into the new stuff, and you obviously had an opportunity this week to chat to good old Osha of The Bachelor, let's wrap things up. Married at First Sight huge phenomenon this year in news terms in ratings terms in the demographics you name it how how did the final week look um yeah absolutely massive it took out the highest ratings of its entire six seasons uh the final two episodes i believe one pulled 1.8 million metro viewers now the one pulled 1.9 really close push to two yeah so it was completely untouchable every night it was on Nine took the win. It was nobody could touch it. Having not watched much of it this season, I, I really felt I should make an effort. So I did watch the last two episodes and I felt like a, an alien who <laughs> wandered in. And it was in some ways the world seemed familiar, but in other ways, apparently it's okay at dinner parties to throw wine at people <laughs> when you're cross with them. Um, it was like. It was like a strange parallel universe that just normal rules of etiquette and behavior didn't really apply. And even uh, a lot of the backlash to the show has been the actual rules of the show no longer apply um, and whatever was set up in the first couple of seasons doesn't really count anymore. I mean, how mad can you be at it, really? It's done so well for itself. Look, I suppose that's my question. And, we, you know, undoubtedly it's done well. Undoubtedly it did very well in the key demographics as well. I, I found myself thinking a bit about the fact that, you know, I've got kids in the house we couldn't have it on when mm. the kids were around. And yet suddenly Nine is about to be beating its chest about Lego Masters and with a family-friendly network. So it's like, okay, so now we can have the telly on. Um, can you be both? Yeah, well, they, Nine are saying they don't want to be both. And they're saying that actually what they're focusing on is content that generates conversation, content that generates water cooler conversation, and not so much on being the family network, being the, you know, maths network. Um, so they are saying that they're not trying to hit both. I think with Lego Masters, they're just hoping it'll be a talking point. Lego Masters being the one hosted by Hamish Blake. Hamish Blake, yeah. And I don't know, It's I mean, it's an untested concept. It's a bit left field. Um, and I think we're just going to have to see what happens with it, really. Viv, your feelings on maths? <laughs> I, unlike everyone on Twitter who said they were going to boycott maths and then <laughs> continued to live tweet about it nonstop, I actually didn't watch maths this year. I wasn't willing to commit. I think in the end, if you watched every episode, 
they calculated you'd wasted like 48 hours of Hang your life. Hang on, invested 48 hours. <laughs> I'm going to stick with my original wording and, and not be corrected there. So I didn't, I didn't watch it, but I did find the whole pushback really interesting where there was so much talk about gaslighting, misogyny, the promotion of all-round terrible behaviours and, and cheating for want of a better word. And all these people were saying, oh, I'm not going to watch it. And yet the ratings would come in the next day and more people mm. would be watching. So I guess Nine, who's in the business of entertainment, in the business of viewers and in the business of generating revenue off those viewers and off that entertainment, as much as they're getting criticism for this promotion of terrible humans and, and throwing wine at dinner parties, I can't see any motivation for them to pull back if 2 million people are going to tune in and watch this trash fire. And not only that, they didn't have any advertiser backlash. In fact, if anything, they so they started off with two major, I believe it was two major brand partners, and by the end of it they had welcomed four more into the fold. So, you know, chat to boycott and whatever, the ratings went up and the advertisers went up. Viv, I've got to say your description of math sounds like one of my family Christmases. <laughs> Which is a good moment to, to move on. Let's, uh, let's talk about another uh, series which has certainly been promoted as being about a relationship confrontation, Bachelor in Paradise. Yeah, so I actually spoke with um, Osher before the show started. And this is Osher Gunsberg. Gunsberg, thank you. Um, what's the best description? Host compare what's um what do we think of uh those? matchmaker extraordinaire <laughs> i don't because, know because he's the one who's sprinkles <laughs> the magic does he's really the face of the whole brand he's become so synonymous with it um and he said that that yes there is going to be some drama we're going to see alex and richie who famously richie was one of the bachelors and they were paired together and did not last very long so he chose alex he chose he? alex at the end of his season and then they split afterwards um, or that they wouldn't have said to the producers at some point in the casting process. <laughs> By the way, who, who else is so, coming? <laughs> Alex Nation has done a, a radio interview and said that she was misled by the producers. Oh. So there has been media chatter about the fact that she did specifically ask and did specifically request. And look, whether or not Richie's contract hadn't come across the line whether lies were involved, whether weasel words were used or whether this is just a publicity tactic of Alex pretending she's more scorned than she actually is, I'm not sure. But that's certainly the story that's been peddled this week that Alex was lied to to get onto the show. And Hannah, one of the things they did was uh, I guess what they've talked about as being a, a, a relatively unusual production technique. Yeah, so they aired the conversation between Alex and Richie unedited and on a split screen. So you could see every awkward, you know, glance between the two of them. And the unediting bit is um, was a real push when I spoke with Osha. Um, he was saying that a lot of reality TV is obviously uh, there's a lot of backlash about editing, getting the villain edit, etc. Um, so they're really kind of pushing that honest delivery of awkward moments and... And um, opening night, how did how, how did Bachelor in Paradise open? It didn't. Uh, it didn't open amazingly well. It delivered um, five hundred and fifty three thousand viewers, Metro viewers. Um, it did air on a Tuesday last year. It aired on a Sunday to seven hundred and fifty thousand Metro viewers. Um, Tenor saying that historically Sunday premieres get higher ratings. Yeah, which is a fair point. Um, 
And they're also saying they're happy with the results. And presumably where it did skew a bit better would have been in the under 50s, which is the market that yes. 10 says it goes after. And it did become, it was top in all three of the key demographics. So, so 25, 54, 16, 39, 18, 49. Yeah. The ones that the advertisers care about. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it didn't like, obviously it didn't flop, but I don't know whether 10 were hoping for higher numbers. And look, I mean... Networks are always hoping for higher numbers, but one thing they will be pleased with is it did dominate social media chatter and it did get all the column inches that it always seeks to get on the youth publishing sites like Pedestrian, Punky, BuzzFeed and whatnot as everybody recapped every little minuscule bit of drama, you know, the top tweets of the night, everything like that. And Ten says that with programs like this, it wants the conversation to continue and live on and be longer than the program itself. So in that sense, they have achieved what they set out to. And importantly for the sales teams, it uh, won the demographics as well. And I suppose the other thing for Tan is, is and, and it, I'll ask you to make a prediction, we've seen some pretty rotten share for Tan in recent weeks. Last week was another low for the year, very much just I guess the big squish was married at first sight, which also affected my kitchen rules for seven as well. But 10 was the one that was really squeezed in the middle. Are we through the worst now? Because obviously they've got Bachelor coming up, they've got MasterChef coming up, you know, which are a couple of really strong franchises. Are they going to have a better final three quarters than the first quarter, do you think? I would be horrendously shocked if they didn't. I think their first quarter was so dire. It's really hard for them to come to do worse. Um, We were always kind of predicting the finale of Married at First Sight would be really hard for them to weather, and it was. That was when they saw their lowest share. Um, But I think with Bachelor in Paradise, historically the lowest rating of the three, um, and we've still got Bachelor and Bachelorette, Bachelorette with Angie Kent on board, who the public seemed to like. Gogglebox is yeah, Angie Kent. Yeah, uh, Gogglebox Angie Kent, and she was in um, I'm a Celebrity, and MasterChef still does fairly well. So The struggle for 10 will be just how important Sunday night is mm. in terms of staking your claim on the week ahead and getting audiences on board with your programs that are coming up. Sunday night for 10 at the moment isn't a strong one. They've got Chris and Julia's Sunday night takeaway. With just one more episode of that to go now. Yeah, and that just hasn't been going very well at all. So people now aren't in the habit of turning on Channel 10 on a Sunday night and then watching it for the week. So they really need to work on building up that audience, especially now that Married at First Sight is gone, if they want to turn their weekly ratings around. I wonder if um, MasterChef might be one to help them with that because historically MasterChef is a good Sunday night show. Um, And I wonder if Bachelor in Paradise can't get them over the line on that, whether MasterChef might help them out. Next, WPP's Parity Push. So WPPAUNZ, one of the bigger players in the media and marketing agency space, um, has become, the, I think, the first local holding company to make a specific commitment around gender parity in its uh, senior ranks. Um, Paul, is, is this meaningful? It appears to be. Uh, just when they made that announcement, uh, they also announced a head of investment at Wavemaker, uh, Philippa Nielsen-Tace. She, um, uh, she joins a 
ranks of uh, women in leadership positions there. There's been quite a few others recently. So they seem to be walking the talk on that. Um, they uh, And indeed, they've got a program called Walk the Talk, which uh, they claim over the past two years has seen almost 300 women in the program. So they are pushing this. Uh, but there is this broader problem in the industry, which maybe WPPAUNZ are pushing back on, uh, that uh, we saw last week with the anonymous piece that we had um, over um, women returning to work after um, after maternity leave. And I think this is, um, this is the broader issue that uh, the industry as a whole is going to have to face. Did WPP say anything about just how far away from this target they are in that they're asking or well, aiming for 50-50 by 2021. We're well into 2019, so they've got probably 18 months to to tick that box. How how far off are they? You know, is this a realistic goal or are they basically already there and now they're just making some PR noise so that they can definitely tick the box once they're there? Well, they're claiming at the moment, Viv, that there's 39% uh, female participation in those roles. And you're right, that is a bit of a, over 18 months, that's going to be quite a push. And uh, it might be a good time to be sending your CV across to uh, WPPHUNZ if you're a uh, female with, um, with one of the other agencies. Next, marketing moves at Domain. So real estate group Domain has a new marketing boss, albeit with a different title to the woman he replaces, Vivian. Now, I'm not implying that you are the woman he replaces. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So we had uh, Melina Cruikshank defect to Domain's rival REA group last December. Which in the real estate world was massive. Yeah, look, listeners might not appreciate just how big the rivalry is between REA and the sort of second tier player. Because both Jermaine. you and Hannah used to write about this stuff. And we did, Your yeah. head basically exploded when Melina went. <laughs> well, look, it was just exciting when all of my worlds collide. You know, I, I'm getting contacted by real estate agents. I'm getting contacted by media people. And, you know, it was just all of my favourite people coming together about a big, dramatic, gossipy story. So it was, you know, I was in my, my happy place. So uh, Melina moved across, which left a really big void for Domain, which, of course, has a relatively new CEO in the form of former Google man Jason Pellegrino uh, with the departure of Anthony Catalano. They've restructured their sales team. Now they've got a new marketing function. So instead of having a direct chief marketing officer, they have uh, replaced it with one of Paul's favourite job titles, chief customer officer, and that is Jason Chuck, who was formerly the chief executive officer of LJ Hooker's digital real estate agency known as, oh, goodness, I should know this, maybe Hannah knows, Avenue? Avenue. (laughs) So I think it's Avenue spelt without a lot of the necessary letters. (laughs) Uh, But he comes across to Domain as CCO, which will include the sort of marketing function for consumers. And, Paul, if I recall correctly, he's he's crossed paths with Jason Pellegrino in the past, hasn't he, career-wise? Yes, he previously worked at Google um, at the turn of the decade, so 2009, I think it was. So, uh, yeah, he's um, he's a known quantity to Jason. And, Viv and Hannah, what is the scuttlebutt on the street on how Jason Pellegrino is doing as boss? Look, I would love to meet Jason to talk about how he's going as boss. So, so Jason, if you're listening, the invite is still very much open for you to come on the Mumbrella cast. I think it's been difficult to coordinate calendars and, and whatnot. Oh, but we've made an invitation, have we? The invitation is standing. Whether or not it's reached him, 
I, I can't Perhaps say for sure. we should start doing the podcast with an empty microphone each week. Yes. The Jason microphone. <laughs> or just do really passive-aggressive shout-outs like this every week to people who I want to, to come on the show. Uh, look, Jason is a huge departure from Anthony the Cat Catalano. I'm sure everybody's read the many and varied allegations against him in the press and the sort of ship that he steered. So they've brought in a very corporate man in the form of Jason Pellegrino, which means people who were unhappy with the cat's style of leadership are happy that it's it's more corporate, more professional, allegedly. Which I suppose would have been sort of mercurial might be the one of the, the descriptions, <laughs> I suppose. But also let's recognise the fact that, you know, he created a massive high valuation business well well, here's my next point is that for all of his detractors the cat does have a huge fan base he knows how to build businesses and he knows how to take on and take down rivals which is why he sort of ended up coming back to domain in in the first place when he took on fairfax so there are some people who i think from what i hear in in gossiping whinging senses is that some people do miss the cat they're not necessarily on board with Jason's more formal style of leadership and that maybe that's not resonating with real estate agents as much because as Hannah and I can attest to, real estate agents do like somebody like the cat. They, they do like a good time. They do like to be sold to. They say that salespeople are the easiest people to sell to. So they like that experience and whether or not Jason can lead a team that lends itself to that without turning into a a boys club or a problematic culture, it's quite a delicate balance for anyone to find. And I think one of the other interesting things with with this appointment was is that the new CCO picks up all of the revenue side of things from the consumer point of view. Now, Catalano's big talent is engaging with the real estate agents and bringing those in, and that's the business-to-business focus that uh, Domain has. This seems to be that under Pellegrino, Domain's not, I won't say pivoting to use another um, tech industry term there, but uh, changing its focus a little bit to uh, getting more of that revenue out of the readership. Uh, with things like their um, uh, relocation services, uh, um, property price reports, that sort of thing, that added value for uh, on that freemium model. Yes, and of on. course they've been promoting home loans a bit more. Exactly in recent, right. And in, in fact, um, when I followed up with the PR on that, uh, that was one of the areas that they were um, they were citing. So that doesn't come uh, as a surprise to me because if you watch both Domain and REA, they're very desperately trying uh, to kind of get that lost revenue they've lost in listings because you know as we all know the property market not as good as it was at one point tanking (laughs) i'm not going to use your your media words um i'll give it time you will (laughs) (laughs) but so that's what they're all doing rea has done the same they've started a home loan side um when jason pellegrino did um restructure he very much split it in one side was focused on agents and the other side was focused on consumers which i think is why we see a different Brand title now, I don't think that's that big a deal. Um, But yeah, it doesn't, what I think is more interesting perhaps is the fact that he's obviously um, surrounding himself with people that he already knows are on side, whereas a lot of the Catalano supporters, such as Tom Ainworth, has left the building. He was on the sales side. Yeah, and he was a strong Catalano supporter. Um, So I think that's kind of interesting, whether that speaks to Pellegrino perhaps struggling with the current culture, whether maybe he wants to get some more of his old pals back on side. Who knows? And the other fascinating thing, of course, is the cat appears to be in the frame at the moment for picking up Nine's regional newspaper mastheads. 
certainly if ever there's a me- <laughs> if ever there's talk of a media sale, you can be sure that Catalano will be in the mix. Absolutely, whether uh, whether it ends up sort of as you know him along with some uh, private equity. We will yeah, see. As we discussed um, in a podcast a month or two back um, on exactly that, is that the suburban titles and regional titles would actually be a good fit for a new um, property play as well. So uh, that's a space worth watching. Can he do it just one more time? Mm-hmm. Next, all change at Pedestrian. So the founders of one of Australia's big youth sites, Pedestrian, are leaving. Chris Rosina and Oscar Martin will be replaced at the helm by Matt Rowley. Um, I suppose they they were they were given this giant bag of money in various <laughs> tranches by nine over over recent years. Um, so it's probably a matter of time, wasn't it? Yeah. Look, I don't think anybody expected them to stick around forever, particularly when there's so many moving parts. You know, they launched Pedestrian fifteen years ago. Then back in 2014, they sold a 60% stake in the business to Nine for a rumoured $10 million. So there's your first bag of money. It was then revealed last year that Nine paid a further $39.3 million for the remaining 40% of the business. So throw into the mix the Nine merger with Fairfax and then Fairfax's other publishing business, Allure Media, being merged into Pedestrian, which included titles like Pop Sugar gizmodo and business insider there's just so many things happening they've got their bags of money they've achieved what they wanted to and turned it into an excellent profitable publishing business they were never going to stay forever they've they've done what they needed to do and and they've used that classic uh, line in the press release that they're exploring new ventures Mm. well i suppose that's the thing if they've got the hunger to go again um, they would find it very easy to get investment as well just on their track record because that would have been one of the most successful media exits of recent years Exactly, yeah. Not only did they get the bag of money, the pedestrian brand is so strong and when Nine talks about its publishing assets, particularly now that it's bought Fairfax and people are talking about whether print media can continue to survive, where's the future in newspapers, what's going to happen with Nine and Fairfax's assets. Whenever they're interviewed about the strength of their publishing or lack thereof, they always point to pedestrian as, well, look, we've got pedestrian, it's strong it's thriving. So Oscar and Chris have done a very good job at positioning that as a successful publishing business in an era when publishing is seen to be struggling. It also hits that um, a very good demographic for them that print media has historically really struggled to hit. Um, And Fairfax, to be fair, really struggled to hit. It's a youth publisher. It's a very popular youth publisher. My question, I think going forward, you just said then, Viv, that they have a very strong voice, um, which is what i love about pedestrian i'm a diehard pedestrian supporter um i am going to be watching very closely to see whether that survives um i think chris and oscar were a massive part of that and i think their belief in what pedestrian stood for was a massive part of that and i think um <laughs> going the corporate route it's going to be very interesting to see where that leaves the brand look it's a challenge for matt i suppose one of the things he does come to it although he's sort of well he's had a bit of a meteoric rise so he rose very fast within fairfax before it was sold at, uh, sold to nine and then you know stepped up again within the publishing group at, at fairfax but he has got a bit of content background as well, sort of particularly on the content marketing side so he's not a complete stranger to that world so 
I, I can't think of anyone within that nine group who would have been better qualified. And yeah, just on Hannah's point there, um, it, one of the other things is that uh, nine overall, uh, not just the print side, but also the broadcast side. I mean, we've spoken about the success of maths, but overwhelmingly the audience for television is skewing older as well. So this is um, really putting that um, staking nines uh, turf, if you like, out in that younger demographic. Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to see what they do with that wider pedestrian group, whether there are further launches, further acquisitions, or although I can't actually think of much that's out there to acquire. I think another thing pedestrian does really well, which is an interesting uh, for the Nine brand, is they do some really good branded content. They do some really good partnerships. They've kind of really nailed down that side, that commercial side of the business, which Nine.com.au less so obviously they're you know very popular in terms of readership but they don't really kind of nail that side of the business so it will be interesting to see if they can kind of pick that up yeah i mean it is interesting that the new ceo of pedestrian is matt rowley who was fairfax's chief revenue officer and then with the merger of nine and fairfax became director of sales for publishing so i'm not sure what that speaks to but it's interesting that they've brought you know a someone who was recently in a very prominent sales role to be CEO of Pedestrian and whether that means they're going to be pushing more on the commercial side and then that balance of Pedestrian keeping its voice without the youth market thinking, well, you're just a nine sellout now. Well, next, Mumbrella's Josie Tutty talks to Gay Leroy from the Interactive Advertising Bureau. And joining us now on the Mumbrella cast, we have Gailey Roy, CEO at IAB Australia. Gay was appointed to CEO in 2018 after spending several years as the IAB's Director of Research. She has previously worked at Nielsen, Nine and Fairfax, way back when Nine and Fairfax weren't the same thing. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Thanks for joining us, Gay. Thanks, Josie. So a few weeks back, the IAB hosted a Future of Measurement discussion, sort of town hall style meeting, uh, which was an open discussion for the industry to talk about the next steps of online measurement in Australia. The event was closed to media, so I'm a little bit curious to hear what happened, Guy. What were some of the big topics of discussion at the meeting? Yes, we weren't there talking about media, but um, (laughs) yeah, it was interesting. It was even the issue of having a town hall meeting, it was we had quite a few people because it wasn't held at a town hall who weren't familiar with the concept of, you know, that big industry discussion point. So we had about 120 people there. We're actually presenting some research that we'd already carried out. So uh, myself and our new research director, Natalie Stanbury, have spent like the last three months out in market, talking to everyone, running surveys, really trying to get an understanding of what people want for measurement in the next few years, what they want and what we can afford to do, I guess, and they're often two different things. Um, so the town hall meeting was a chance to share what we'd found in, in market and then also get people in discussion in terms of if that's how they see the market, where the sticking points are. Um, so it wasn't as heated as probably you're hoping, <laughs> uh, but there were definitely some different takes. If you look at you know, comparing a media player to a tech player to an advertiser to an agency, um, they've all got very different needs. And tell me a little bit about the buy and sell side research and some of your findings there. Yeah, look, so when we last did our big um, out-to-market discussion, and we do it every few years, but I'd really say six years ago, so when I was look, when we were looking at the market then, people were really after 
what we call ratings, so content ratings, looking at comparative stats for different media properties in different categories. Um, you, you guys in Mumbrella love publishing our, our news rankings each <laughs> month and getting everyone competitive. Um, I guess the buying market's changed a lot over the last few years, particularly with programmatic, um, with split across platforms. So you've now got the buy side, although they still want to know about the media environments, they want to know about the reach and frequency of their campaign which can look quite different. So if you're you're not always buying a complete site, you're buying a certain type of audience, a certain segment, certain time of day. So there's a real um, need for backfilling with a bit more information on people measurement for campaigns. So if we think about why we've done ratings historically, um, and a lot of people do come to me and say, but we've got analytics, we've got all this data. Why on earth are you creating things with panels and um, methodology that can seem quite old school? Um, and, and at the core of that is trying to track people. And people are hard. And we want to do it in an ethical way that looks at people, um, any duplication across devices. So Josie, if you're using your phone and your connected TV and your um, laptop that'll all have different analytics so that so the aim of ratings is always doing to pull it to one person number and the appetite in market is to do the same thing on the campaign side so a market could really say across particular particularly my digital campaigns this was the number of people the number of times I reached them so traditional media that's quite a simple um, proposition because you get 100% of the audience but for digital it can be quite different and do you think we'll ever get to the point where we won't need to use those panels and the technology will catch up and be able to link up enough for us to not have to use them? If you had have asked me that two years ago, I would have said possibly. Actually, now I think it's um, panels are becoming sexy again. They're actually coming back into vogue. <laughs> That's if, a good point right there. <laughs> yeah. um, if you think about the changes in privacy, in tracking, in making sure that people are opting in, on tracking their behaviour, panels are a really clean way of doing that, particularly if you're tracking across different devices. Um, so we're actually finding panels are still particularly important to do that cross-digital and also it's helpful when you're doing cross-media. So if we're trying to combine TV and digital ratings, knowing it's that one person mm-hmm. um, and technology can do so much, uh, but panels where someone's opted in and say, yes, you can track me across these three devices, um, can pull all those pieces together. Definitely. Now, before we begin to dig too deep into the measurement side of things, mm. I wondered if you could just explain for our listeners who maybe don't quite know a lot about this sort of stuff in great detail, how does the relationship between Nielsen and IAB work? So about Eight years ago, I think, I'm just, my memory's going back, um, the AANA and the MFA came to the IAB and said, we are confused in market. We're getting sales decks from a myriad of different media publishers that either have different research companies or different analytics numbers, and we really want a source of truth, like we would have for TV ratings or radio ratings. So at that point, the IAB went, okay, we'll, we'll own this um, and put out to tender a brief um, in terms of the scope of types of tracking that we wanted. At that point, it was a lot easier. It was desktop only. Um, it was browser, not apps. <laughs> so it was a nice, simple one, which we thought was hard at the time. Um, put it out to tender, had a number of research companies come back and, and Nielsen um, were awarded the contract. So they're the commercial 
provider. We just set the framework and the desires of the industry and, and basically put a stamp saying you're our preferred supplier. Mm-hmm. And now the IAB endorses Nielsen's digital content ratings, which is an independent measurement solution for publishers. Now, Gay, I'm sure you'll be able to explain it better than me. Could you give it a shot? <laughs> sure. Um, so it's a, you know, the simple thing is it's a rating system that tries to look at media properties, whether it be, uh, you know, a website or an app uh, across desktop, phone and tablet. That's really important that it gets that whole landscape. Um, publishers, certain publishers tag their properties. So we get quite in-depth information. We get daily, weekly, monthly and some of the off-platform information. Others don't tag and that's another reason why the panel's really important to actually show the agencies and advertisers the complete landscape. So if there's an overseas site that's be- becoming popular or a new Pokemon Go or whatever it might <laughs> be, that it's primary focus isn't the Australian ad market, we can still pick up that activity. Okay, great. Um, Mamma Mia recently made headlines, their women's publisher, um, as it announced it was pulling out of Nielsen's digital content ratings with CEO Jason Levine describing them as materially incomplete. What did you make of this at the time? Look, J- Jason and I talked about his decision as well, and it's disappointing. The, the tricky thing with ratings is to get... Uh, keep it, you know, with the curve while still keeping the rigour around what we're doing. So sometimes there will be new data available within analytics or people's own data sets. But if we're not technically able to track that across different players or we haven't got access to that data, um, we can't really just keep adding on extra bits. So um, look, I'm hoping Mama Mia will come back in at some point, mm-hmm. but it's it's our responsibility along with Nielsen and who do this globally to make sure there are certain rules in place um, and we can't tailor them for each for each player, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I think I know your answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. Levine's answer to us was that he would provide open access to their third-party analytics, their Google Analytics for clients and agencies. Why wouldn't that work? Uh, because... Much to the point we are talking about earlier, so it's not people. So it's interesting. I'm sure the agencies use a whole lot of data sets mm-hmm. from different different providers, but it wouldn't give them the ability to dedupe with another. So if someone was wanting to buy Mamma Mia and another women's site, to actually look at that people level and work out what extra reach am I getting, you can't get that from a flat analytics file. Now, one of the reasons Mamma Mia quoted for pulling out of the uh, DCR is the off-platform measurement metric, which is essentially where you are trying to track who is looking at the publishers on Facebook, essentially. Yeah. Um, now, currently, the DCR counts a video view as soon as it commences playing, playing, meaning that someone scrolling past an auto-playing Facebook video and watching for zero seconds could still be counted as a viewer. Now, the IAB has pulled its support for this metric. Where do we go from here? So we've been testing new data from Nielsen that looks at two seconds and a 30-second threshold for being included in an audience, and that rule will be the same for on or off-platform mm-hmm. for video. So we're hoping to bring that to market in the next couple of months, which means we'll be able to endorse that video number. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but Facebook have sort of pulled their own support from it, so how do we kind of make everyone work together and make Facebook play along? Yeah, look, sometimes we're going to accept that that can't happen, so we will stick to our our guns in terms of 
you know, making sure an audience member is an audience member. So the two seconds is in place. There's actually a new paper that dropped quite recently from the Media Ratings Council, which is the body in the States that looks after viewability and a lot of accreditation. Um, and they're, they're in line with our thinking, so having those minimum thresholds. And it's particularly useful when you're combining um, digital video with TV. So to try and make sure that we've got sort of comparable metrics, both for content and for ads. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of publishers express their concerns all the time around measurement. And I guess part of that is because it's it's not just a monetary thing for them. It's also their identity. They're higher, they're doing better than this person, all this sort of things that play into it. But do you think from a media agency's and an advertiser's point of view that they're actually as fussed about the measurements? Um. Probably not, Josie, to be <laughs> honest. And, you know, it probably breaks my, cause, you know, I come from publisher side mm. and, and, and it is a really important internal and external. It opens doors. So yeah. those, those rankings do make sure you get into consideration set. But the advertisers and the agencies, again, as I was talking about, they're focused on their brand activity. I think though there has been a bit more of a focus, not necessarily on how many billion people you reached, um, <laughs> but the content and the context. Um, over the last couple mm -hmm. of years. So brands and advertisers, when they were very focused on audience buying, and that's still at the heart of what they're doing, there's a lot more focus on what's that environment that their ads are sitting in. So you do need both pieces of the puzzle to work that out. Mm -hmm. And obviously, all the things we're talking about are Australia based. But I just wondered if you thought from a global perspective, the issues around measurement, digital platforms, where do you think Australia sits in the global landscape? Historically, we've always said we're world leading and, and, and we're, I, I guess the gap's sort of narrowing a little bit, definitely on the content rating sides, particularly for text. If I look at what's happening in America, very focused on video, video and TV, whereas in Australia, we've had this really strong publisher base with news media, um, text environments, which we've monitored really well and sustained that profile within agencies. Um, video point of view, US is moving quite quickly at the moment. Um, trying to find a um, point where broadcasters and YouTube primarily, but a whole lot of other players get to a currency for for ad ratings and content ratings. Um, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast with um, the my sort of my equivalent in the UK, so not the head of the IAB, but the head of their measurement digital measurement mm -hmm. body, um, and it was almost like hearing myself. The <laughs> market was so similar. You swapped out the name Nielsen for Comscore. Um, but all the same challenges, they're looking at content and ads. So I think the big markets are all dealing with the same mm -hmm. issues. Um, we're often asked who's dealing with voice. You know, there's lots of stuff coming down the line and I guess it's the role of a, an industry body and, and the commercial players like Nielsen in market mm -hmm. to go, when is it viable to do such a thing? Uh, when is the money big enough to, to manage that? Yeah. And do you think it's also simply a fact that the big tech players are based in the US? That means the US is always naturally going to have that one step ahead? Increasingly so, um, particularly when you look at things like verification and viewability. So it's, it's not just the, you know, the digital platforms, but it's also, you know, those tech providers, the programmatic guys, 
Um, so it is increasingly global, though we still like to um, throw our weight around here <laughs> and things like the two seconds, you know, we made that call and now we are seeing that flow through to the rest of the world. So Definitely. I still like to think we're ahead. <laughs> now talking about things that are happening here, the ACCC's inquiry into digital platforms is underway at the moment and there's been lots of submissions from publishers and platforms including Facebook and Google. I just wondered what outcomes you'd like to see from the report. Um, look, I'm hoping from the report and, and I know they're talking to, you know, a myriad of stakeholders that we get to a point that's healthy both for consumers and for business, which is, is tricky. But the privacy element, I think we've had a lot of learnings from GDPR in the mm -hmm. EU. Um, so I think we can get to a point where we do have that respect for consumers. Probably, I think as an industry, we haven't been great at communicating that value exchange to consumers. Mm -hmm. um, I've sat in many sort of focus groups where people are, I don't want any of my data tracked, but if you give me a non-relevant ad, <laughs> I will freak out and not making that connection between yeah. the two. So I think as an industry, we can be a bit more transparent, but also point out what that what that mm -hmm. value exchange looks like. I know that I'm a bit guilty of that because I just signed up for a food app where I got free fur and because of that, I gave them all my data. So <laughs> I'm just as guilty as anyone. Yeah. But you understood what you were doing. That's yes, the main I thing. did. Yeah. And I wanted a free lunch. <laughs> so... To wrap things up, let's end on a positive note. Yeah. Um, in an ideal world, what, where do you see the future of measurement? If everything goes to plan and everything that you're doing kind of turns out well, what would that look like? Um, I guess the short-term or mid-term solution would be working with the other industry bodies, making sure that we can, for agency marketers, combine TV, radio, digital all the other bits and pieces into, into one system for them, even if it's top-line channel planning point of view, and then enabling um, actually all players in the market to enhance that with extra data, that differentiator. So combining that base, that solid base of here's what the universe looks like. Um, we're all friends in this big media <laughs> industry together um, because we are. We're all there to support advertising. Mm -hmm. um, but then in, I guess in a utopian society you'd have – probably 5,000 very unusual individuals that had a, um, a chip built within them <laughs> that you were tracking every move, every piece of content that they came across would be the only way you could actually patch it all together. Mm. So I, I don't think the privacy rules will allow us to do that. Nope. So we might have to fuse some data sets for the moment. We will see. <laughs> okay. Um, sadly, that's all we've got time for. But thank you very much, Gay, for joining us. Thanks, Josie. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, Tim. We'll Thank see you, you next week. Toodle pip.